Six months after the pandemic hit, the U.S. has seen 200,000 people die of the coronavirus. Ellen DeGeneres issued a public apology, but former staffers say it doesn't go far enough. And former housing secretary and presidential candidate Julian Castro is here to talk about his new podcast, Our America. The date, September 22nd, 2020. The time, news o'clock. Hey everyone, I'm Hayes Brown. And I'm Casey Rackham. Welcome to BuzzFeed's News O'Clock. Casey, I am sure that I'm going to jinx this by saying it, but as we're recording right now, it feels like possibly the chillest day we've seen in weeks. And I just don't know how it's going to stop being chill yet. I literally don't know why you would jinx something like that. I feel like we're pre-jinxed. I just wanted to put, I just, I'm just putting voice to the jinx that is already out there. Meanwhile, when you said chillest, I thought you meant weather-wise because it actually is not in the 90s today in California. So I was like, yes, love this. It is chill. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's the first day of fall and that's great. But also we're about to spike back up to almost 80 here in New York. And that's dumb and I hate it. (laughs) Okay, it's time for today's top stories. Here's what you need to know. The UN is celebrating its 75th anniversary this year, but thanks to the coronavirus, things are a bit condensed, including President Trump's address. In normal times, world leaders converge on New York City around this time of year for the opening of the UN General Assembly. But this year, the UN told everyone, uh, you can stay home, thanks. Instead, UN members were invited to submit pre-recorded speeches, which would then be introduced and played at the UN headquarters. And that's meant much shorter speeches, President Trump's address this year was only six minutes long compared to last year's, which was over half an hour long. And after praising his administration's response to the coronavirus, a lot of those six minutes were about China. As we pursue this bright future, we must hold accountable the nation which unleashed this plague onto the world, China. In the earliest days of the virus, China locked down travel domestically while allowing flights to leave China and infect the world. China condemned my travel ban on their country, even as they canceled domestic flights and locked citizens in their homes. Oh, no, sorry, stop too soon. He he keeps going on with the blaming China for this entire pandemic thing. Keep playing. The Chinese government and the World Health Organization, which is virtually controlled by China, falsely declared that there was no evidence of human-to-human transmission. Later, they falsely said people without symptoms would not spread the disease. The United Nations must hold China accountable for their actions. Soon after Trump's address finished playing at the UN, the U.S. hit a grim milestone. As of today, 200,000 people have died of COVID-19. That's according to the trackers at Johns Hopkins University, which has been keeping a tally since the early days of the pandemic. They draw their stats from, among others, the Red Cross, the Census American Community Survey, and the Bureau of Labor Statistics. But as experts have been noting for months, both new cases and deaths are still probably severely undercounted. The good news is that it took four months to reach this point, compared to the two months between when the pandemic was declared and hitting 100,000 deaths in the U.S. But As the New York Times noted today, the average number of cases has begun ticking back up again as fall has approached. The 15% jump in the past 10 days is the biggest that we've seen since spring. But unlike then, other wealthy countries are now experiencing the same issues, with Canada and the UK both implementing new restrictions this week. 
And finally, Senate Republicans seem likely to confirm a new Supreme Court justice ahead of the election, even though they don't have a nominee yet. Senate Judiciary Chair Lindsey Graham said as much on Fox News last night. Speaking with Sean Hannity, Graham seemed fired up and ready to say yes to basically anyone who's nominated. I've seen this movie before. It's not going to work. It didn't work with Kavanaugh. We've got the votes to confirm uh, Justice Ginsburg replacement before the election. We're going to move forward in the committee. We're going to report the nomination out of the committee to the floor of the United States Senate so we can vote before the election. That's the constitutional process. After Kavanaugh, everything changed with me. They're not going to intimidate me, Mitch McConnell, or anybody else. And hopes that enough Republicans would opt to put off a vote until after the election were dashed today, when Utah Senator Mitt Romney said he'd vote on whoever Trump nominates. Graham said today that he's looking at three days of hearings in October before a vote. If this goes through, it will be the fastest confirmation of a Supreme Court justice in over 30 years, according to PBS NewsHour's Lisa Desjardins. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's confirmation took 42 days. FYI, that is exactly how long it is from today until the election. So, I mean, what's the reason behind all of this right now? Is it literally, is it all compounded of just like they want to get their person in? And the fact that, do you think they're at all nervous about possibly the, the Senate flipping? I mean, yeah, definitely. And that's what, and that's like lighting a fire under them to be like, okay, we got to do it now. There's like so many different factors at play here. I mean, so on on the broader macro level, yes, this is all about power politics. They can do it, so they will, while they still can. Because yeah, the Senate is not guaranteed to still be theirs come January when the new Congress is sworn in, and the the presidency not guaranteed to be theirs. So their their thinking seems to be well. Yeah, you can bitch about it all you want, guys, but we have the votes to say, yeah, we're going to vote in whoever we want. And they can blame it on things like, oh, well, Joe Biden back in 92 ahead of the election said that the seat should be filled by the next president. Or I mean, there, there's a whole lot of arguments out there, but basically it does boil down to, yeah, we can do it. So we're going to. Mm. And going back to um, the 200,000 deaths from COVID-19, I saw something um, on Twitter that really struck me. And it was Trump was at a rally recently and talking about COVID-19. He said it affects virtually nobody. And Twitter user Kristen Orkiza tweeted, my dad was not a nobody. And and it's true. We've gotten to this point where it's everyone. It's just being treated like numbers. But 200,000 people, that is a very large, impactful number. Those were real people who have family who had families and lives. And it's just like to see something like that and and how there's been a separation that's been made between numbers and people is just. Amber Jamison at BuzzFeed News had a great piece today. Headline was, um, we aren't nationally mourning the 200,000 COVID-19 victim because if we did, it would be a reckoning because yeah, it's, it's, we're at the point that we would have to really stop and consider what have we done wrong? What do we have to change at this point? And it's almost like sunk cost fallacy at this point. Like, well, we've sacrificed so much. We haven't at this point. Do we want to just like keep going with these sacrifices or do we want to get back to our lives? And it's like, yeah, it's a, it's a deep denial of the impact. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Casey, uh, what's going on in the world of pop culture today, though? Well, Ellen DeGeneres kicked off the 18th season of her talk show with an opening monologue that addressed the reports that say her show is a toxic workplace. Let's get to it. Um, As you may have heard, this summer there were allegations of a toxic work environment at our show. And then there was an investigation. 
I learned that things happened here that never should have happened. I take that very seriously, and I want to say I am so sorry to the people who were affected. I know that I'm in a position of privilege and power, and I realize that with that comes responsibility, and I take responsibility for what happens at my show. But not everyone was thrilled with her effort to mend fences. Several current and former employees of the show told BuzzFeed News that they felt she was making light of their allegations of toxicity, racism, sexual harassment, and misconduct. That included Ellen's jokes during the monologue like this one. Being known as the be kind lady is a tricky position to be in. So let me give you some advice out there. If anybody's thinking of changing their title or giving yourself a nickname, do not go with the be kind lady. <laughs> Don't do it. One former employee said, quote, not only did Ellen turn my trauma, turn our traumas into a joke, she somehow managed to make this about her. Another former employee said they're unhappy they had to watch DeGeneres' monologue to hear an apology at all, saying that they would have preferred for someone at Warner Brothers to reach out to them directly about their complaints. Warner Brothers subsidiary Telepictures as a whole is going through a moment of reckoning about the behind-the-scenes treatment of staff on some of their hit shows. Aside from BuzzFeed News' reporting on The Ellen Show and TMZ, The Hollywood Reporter noted that the complaints go back as far as The Rosie O'Donnell Show. Which is a minute. That was, like, what, late 90s? Yes. Rosie was on? It's clear that there's, like, deep problems, and I think, like... Uh, you know, the 75 current and former employees that BuzzFeed News spoke to can't know of those and, and know that it's not just Ellen, it's Warner Brothers, but Ellen is the face. So I think this apology really struck them like, I get that. If you just went through all of this and a joke was made publicly about it, it's very much a too soon type of statement. Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And the point was made, uh, Christy from BuzzFeed News was talking about her story on this on Good Morning America earlier today. And uh, yeah, she noted that Ellen is a sarcastic person. She usually gets through controversies by making light of them, by making jokes. But this time it's it's really serious. So I yeah, I agree. It's too soon. Yeah. yeah, and the comment that struck me here is that she somehow managed to make this about her. And I'm like, yeah, she did somehow make this about her. And it's like, no, now's the time to be serious, apologize, and reckon with what's happened on your show, your namesake. Yeah, and uh, just scrolling through Twitter, like, it's not just people who worked on this show. Like, people are not impressed by this apology at all. That's good to know, because I feel like some of her, like, steadfast fans have been the ones that being like, she's kind, her show, like, blah, blah, blah. And it's nice to know that viewers can also, to an extent, see through that as well. All right, when we come back, we've got an interview with Julian Castro. Stay right there. Chief it. We're tired of hearing new year, new you, fat burning secrets, and lose weight fast. The only thing you need to lose is self doubt. The body you're in deserves respect, love, and support. Support you're not getting from your current sports bra. It's time to experience the only sports bra that actually does its job and outperforms the most popular brands on the market. It's time to feel real support from SheFit. Save $10 today at SheFit.com slash 2022. Hey, Lethal listeners, Tig here. Last season on Lethal Lit, you might remember I came to Hollow Falls on a mission, clearing my Aunt Beth's name and making sure justice was finally served. But I hadn't counted on a rash of new murderers tearing apart the town. My mission put myself and my friends in danger, though it wasn't all bad. I'm gonna be real with you, Tig. 
I like you. But now, all signs point to a new serial killer in Hollow Falls. If this game is just starting, you better believe I'm gonna win. I'm Tig Torres, and this is Lethal Lit. Catch up on season one of the hit murder mystery podcast, Lethal Lit, a Tig Torres mystery, out now. And then tune in for all new thrills in season two, dropping weekly starting February 9th. Subscribe now to never miss an episode. Listen to Lethal Lit on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt depressed about work, only to have your dad be like, why are you so down? So you told him you hate your job, and he said, well, you better talk yourself out of it. And then you thought, hmm, I love to talk. I could host a podcast. And then you went to Spreaker from iHeart and started a podcast and got good at it, then monetized it, then quit your boring job, then told your dad, thanks for the advice. And he was like, well, that's not what I meant, and I don't understand what a podcast is, but you seem happy, so that's great, kiddo. You ever do that? Well, you could. At Spreaker.com. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. Ask your dad. You actually don't. Welcome back. Things are pretty fractured right now as we're dealing with the pandemic on top of the usual unfortunate problems in this country, like racism and housing insecurity. So sometimes it's nice to have a reminder that, yeah, we're kind of all going through this together. We're joined today by Julian Castro. He's the former mayor of San Antonio, former secretary of housing and urban development, former presidential candidate, and now host of the new podcast, Our America. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be with y'all. Thanks for having me. So you launched this podcast, Our America, earlier this month. What was your thinking behind it? And I know this is probably rich coming from us, but why a podcast? (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, we're in such a crazy time right now, right? But at the same time, um, it's a moment where we're grappling with these deep, deep conversations and decisions, I think, as a country about who we are and who we want to become. Over the last six years, I've had the opportunity to travel to more than 100 communities in more than 40 states, uh, and I met a lot of inspiring people along the way who told me stories of their struggle. Um, And this podcast really is an opportunity to put those people and those struggles, I think, really into focus. And um, for us to hear in a humanizing and hopeful way about the America that we are and the America that we can become. Uh, and so I'm excited about it. You know, it's, I think people are really going to like it. Our first episode was, uh, because the title is our America. It was my America, my own family's backstory, our, uh, immigrants American dream story here in the United States. And then for our second episode, we returned to Flint to talk to these two individuals, a pastor and his wife, who were very active in the community there and set up what they called a water box, this water filtration system to give, to deliver clean water to the residents of Flint. And they've been at it ever since the emergence of the Flint, Flint water crisis. We checked in with them uh, and I think people are going to you know, really enjoy hearing about their journey and what it means for us to actually get these things right. Uh, So that things like Flint don't happen again. Yeah, uh, I'm from Flint. My parents and brother both still live there. And so it's really interesting to hear why you wanted to go back there for the podcast. Yeah, I think that's part of it is, you know, we want to keep the focus on people and then also on issues that matter to our country. And what I saw in Flint was paralleled, but in some ways by what we've seen during this coronavirus time period, you know, basic mistakes that were made that could have prevented uh, the tragedy, 
disinformation or lack of information that made it harder to actually address the issue. Uh, and we draw some of those parallels in the episode. Mm. You were Secretary of Housing and Urban Development in the Obama administration. The CDC announced earlier this month a ban on evictions until January 1st, but Jen Rice of Houston Public Media told NPR that out of the 100 eviction hearings she's seen in Texas courts recently, only one case was able to successfully use the CDC order to prevent their eviction. What more should HUD be doing to boost that CDC ban? Yeah, you know, uh, what struck me when President Trump announced this were two things. Number one, seemed very political, like he's doing it just in front of an election. And secondly, maybe most importantly for the people on the ground, it's a Swiss, Swiss cheese policy. It has so many holes in it that it's not really helping a lot of people, as, you know, as you noted. What they should be doing is, number one, pass the HEROES Act that the House of Representatives already passed because it extends those eviction moratoriums uh, that were in the CARES Act and expands some of them. And then secondly, people need direct rental assistance because what's happening is not only do they have, you know, rent that's due this month, people are getting backed up, you know, last month's rent, the month before. Uh, so, what we don't want is to just have an eviction moratorium in place and then people get to, let's say, you know, January 1 and all of a sudden the landlord turns around and says, okay, look, uh, not only can I go now into eviction court to get you evicted, but, you know, I want, I want four months worth of rent. And that's just not possible for the vast majority of the 44 million renters out there. So we need both of those things, an eviction moratorium, and we need robust direct rental assistance that will address the needs of renters and a lot of landlords. Texas is looking more like a purple state than ever, with the local GOP seeming worried about this year's results. If you had to pick, though, between Biden winning the state and its electoral college votes and Democrats staking the state house, which would you choose? <laughs> That's an impossible question. That's why we're asking it. <laughs> well, um, I mean, as a matter of fact, I think that if Biden wins the state, then that means that the state house seats, you know, the nine of them the Democrats need are probably going to have gone over to the Democrats. If I had to choose one, probably Biden winning the Electoral College, because that would be such a, and I think it's doable this year, but it would be such a shock to the system that it would change the trajectory of Texas in a positive way, I think beyond just, you know, 2020 or 2022, 24, it would mean so much. Speaking of Texas, the state GOP recently adopted the phrase, we are the storm, thanks to its new chairman, Alan West. It's also a favorite phrase of the QAnon movement. What was your reaction when you heard that they'd made this switch? Probably that uh, they left out a four-letter word right before storm. Uh, that is uh, <laughs> common vernacular. <laughs> so, you know, they, they, they might think about changing it up a little bit and maybe more accurate. Fair enough. Okay. There was a pretty big to-do uh, when you didn't speak at the DNC this year, and you later said that Latinos weren't given enough speaking time at all. Uh, what's the biggest thing that the Biden campaign could do to fix that going forward in terms of their outreach to Latinos? Yeah, you know, I think the Biden campaign gets it. And I was happy to see that that they're putting resources on the ground. Uh, and, you know, I was just part of an event in Florida the other day uh, and then did a couple of uh, interviews, uh, one of them in the Orlando area on local TV. And I know a lot of other surrogates are doing work there too. I mean, it's about registering people who aren't registered yet. In some states like Florida, you can still register. And then mobilizing, really just 
a full court press to get that community, to get the Latino community to turn out. We know that between 2012 and 2016, Latinx turnout fell from about 48.5% to 47%. It's going to make a big difference, you know, in Florida, in Arizona, and also Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, because even though people don't think of it this way, in such a close margin race, you've had growing uh, Latino communities in each of those states that could make the difference. I know that the Biden campaign gets it, and the challenge for the campaign is just to intensely push and push and push in every way and invest those resources between now and November 3rd. Last Friday, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. What was your reaction when you heard the news? Oh, it's very sad. Uh, It's an earthquake a few weeks before the election because her presence on the court uh, not only helped stave off uh, potentially would have, would have been terrible for millions and millions of Americans. I think of the ACA decision. I think of decision, the decision around marriage equality, Roe versus Wade over the years. So many important fundamental rights that she has been a champion of. Then also, she was a trailblazer in her own right, well before she even came to the court. And it was sad to see the passing of someone who has been uh, such an important part of making the words in our Constitution real. And, you know, I don't think that there will be anybody to ever quite replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And also, it's a reminder that we need to fight hard and push back against any kind of appointment that Donald Trump would try and make, uh, because Mitch McConnell is already engaging in hypocrisy. He stole a seat from Barack Obama, a Supreme Court seat, when Merrick Garland was uh, nominated a, a few years ago. And now he's doing a complete 180, Mitch McConnell is, and saying, no, we're going to make sure that Trump's nominee gets a vote. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, you know, there needs to be more consistency than that. So there have been a lot of calls for Democrats adding more seats to the court if the GOP moves to fill the Ginsburg seat before January. What do you think about that idea? Well, look, I mean, if they're left no other choice, I, don't, I think for many of us, that would not be the first, you know, that's not wasn't our preference. But the fact is that you've had Mitch McConnell not abiding by Uh, not working in good faith under the Constitution, not allowing, uh, on the one hand, a vote for a legitimately nominated person in Merrick Garland, and then flipping over because he wants to get his own party president's nominee in place, flipping over and saying, yeah, they're going to get a vote. If you have that kind of abuse of the system, then yeah, I think Democrats should be open to different ways that we can stave off uh, draconian changes to our fundamental rights, whether it's the overturning of Roe versus Wade or to, uh, to health care opportunity. The, the ACA is going to be decided in June of 2021. The arguments are going to be heard just a week after the election. So these are the stakes. You're talking about losing reproductive freedom. You're talking about losing health care coverage for tens of millions of people in this country who depend on it. You're talking about the Voting Rights Act and, you know, the vision that people like Donald Trump and Stephen Miller and Mitch McConnell have of, you know, only people that look like them really have power or authority in this nation. That will become more real if, if the Supreme Court guts even more the Voting Rights Act. When those are the stakes, um, and they and Mitch McConnell's the one who's abused this 
system, then yeah, I think we need to be open to considering um, either adding more justices or other structural reforms that will prevent this kind of uh, abuse in the in the future. Last thing, Mr. Secretary, shifting gears, pandemic times are hard and your twin brother, Joaquin, is still a member of the House. So how much have you seen each other this year? I know you two just had a birthday last week. Uh, you know, um, I, I don't get to see my brother nearly as much as I'd like. We grew up sharing bunk beds. We went to college and law school together, lived in the same dorm. Then we had our own law firm for a while. I mean, so we saw each other a lot. Um, however, we've taken up playing tennis again. You know, he and I used to play tennis on our high school team and uh, we couldn't play against each other because we'd like break rackets and stuff, get like, <laughs> totally pissed off at each other. Like our coach, our high school coach didn't let us play against each other. Um, but we've started to, you know, volley, uh, get out there onto the courts. And as y'all know, I mean, tennis is one of the sports that's a great game to play right now because you're totally socially distant. And, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, and so I do get to see him probably when he's in town, I don't know, two or three times a week doing awesome. that. <laughs> well, Secretary Castro, thank you so much for joining us. And we're looking forward to listening thank to your you. podcast, Our America. Thanks a lot. Take care, y'all. Okay, we have time for one more thing. Casey, I'm a connoisseur of weird political campaign ads, and this year has been kind of lacking. But this one out of the Georgia Senate race has really made up for that. The ad is for Kelly Loeffler, a millionaire GOP donor who Governor Brian Kemp appointed to her seat in 2019. Did you know Kelly Leffler was ranked the most conservative senator in America? Yep, she's more conservative than Attila the Hun. Fight China. Got it. Attack big government. Yeah. Eliminate the liberal scribes. More conservative than Attila the Hun. Uh-oh. Kelly Leffler, 100% Trump voting record. I'm Kelly Leffler. I approve this message. Casey, your reaction. Um, my first reaction, I know you guys just got to listen to it visually and uh, I guess audibly. It sounds like a like a furniture commercial, looks like one. It's very low budget, but also they and also they unfortunately it feels like they put a lot of work and thought into this. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> I, see, I felt it read more demented Geico ad. <laughs> Uh, but I totally get like furniture store vibes off of it too. Yeah, and visually, they to, to, for people who have not actually seen the thing, when they do the cut to Attila the Hun, he's in a tent with like full costume with a scribe writing down the translations of what he's grunting. It's a mess. <laughs> and you know what? That's why I think it looks like a furniture one because he's sitting in a throne and they usually have that for furniture ones where it's like the king of mattresses. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I also, I think that they conf they're confused here. I think that they got Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan mixed up. <laughs> I, those are very different historical besiegers of of west of the west but not really cuz Genghis Khan is the one that attacked China and it's a oh, guys if you're going to put this much effort into it do some research people <laughs> All right. Uh, so Georgia is weird this year because there's two separate Senate races. Uh, Loeffler was appointed to a seat, like we said, when Johnny Isaacson retired last year. Special election uh, is for a new full-term 
as Georgia Senator, and it's a battle royale right now with all the candidates for both parties fighting for a majority. That's led to some real, like, moments between Loeffler and Representative Doug Collins, who is also running. Collins' campaign said the ad showed that Loeffler thinks, quote, conservatives are grunting, filthy, mass-murdering, open-borders, atheist polygamists, end quote. That is a quote. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not surprised, but man, it's, it's really, really like getting personal between these two. <laughs> and Loeffler, she's supposed to help win over the suburban mom vote, right? Yeah, that was the whole thinking behind her appointment that she's, you know, kind of semi-moderate-ish uh, was the thinking that she's can fund her own campaign for the most part because she's rich. And she'll really win over those those moms in Georgia who look at someone who is also blonde and of a certain age and go, relatable. But now we've got a till of the hunt ad, so... <laughs> 2020 election. Thank you for giving me this gift, giving us this gift. <laughs> and on that note, that's it for today. Join us tomorrow for an interview with author Anne Helen Peterson on how millennials became the burnout generation. And remember, the only person I want to hear talking about the Huns going forward is Captain Lee Shang. From Mulan, it's a joke, it's a reference. Be sure to subscribe to News O'Clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you go for your sound stories. And please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. It helps us figure out what you like about the show versus what you love about the show. And remember to set your alarm so you never miss an episode of News O'Clock. You've always had the feeling that there's something strange about reality. According to the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast, there is. On the show, hosts Robert Lamb and Joe McCormick examine neurological quandaries, cosmic mysteries, evolutionary marvels, and much more. Prosthetics are true testaments to not only human craftsmanship and ingenuity, but also to the plasticity of the human brain. Listen to Stuff to Blow Your Mind on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by DuckDuckGo. Protect your privacy online for free with DuckDuckGo. Hi, I'm Hillary Clinton, and I'm so excited to be back with a third season of You and Me Both. When I started this podcast, we were going through some tough times, and let's face it, we still are. And here's what I know. We cannot get through this alone. So please join me for more conversations with people who will make you think, make you laugh, and help us find a path forward. This season, I'll be talking about the state of our democracy with experts and with people organizing on the ground. We'll draw inspiration from some amazing people like Olympic star Allison Felix and Grammy Award winner Brandi Carlisle. And we'll get into the hard stuff with writer Cheryl Strayed and my dear friend and colleague Huma Abedin. So join us, listen to you and me both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The new year is a great time to reset your relationship with your emotions. We all experience things that don't feel so good. Stuff like sadness, anxiety, burnout, and guilt. But in 2022, I want to help you look at these emotions in a new light. I'm Dr. Laurie Santos. In the new season of my podcast, The Happiness Lab, I'll show you that the path to happiness actually involves embracing your negative emotions and listening to the important things they have to say. So listen to The Happiness Lab in the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.